Welcome to The Pestle. Reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Groundhog Day. Hosted by Groundhog Day. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Gus and Brew. There's such a thing as good Canadian whiskey and a feather ought to freaking be aware of it. Gus and Brew, good Canadian whiskey. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. <laughs> and this is a film podcast for film nerds and connoisseurs. We don't really cover a lot of, I don't know, poppy things, I would say. Like, I love Adam Sandler as much as the next fella, but that's not the kind of stuff we really spend a lot of time watching unless it's his more like punch drunk love or something like that. And so uh, what we do like to do, though, as filmmakers and writers and actors is uh, look at the films that we actually really love to watch and, and have a lot of meat on the bones to discuss. And so I think today we've lined up a really good one to chew on. Uh, what are we covering today? Today we are covering uh, the follow-up to last week, uh, last week's Blade Runner episode. We're following up with Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Uh, so if you haven't seen that film, please pause this episode and go watch it. It is streaming on HBO, uh, HBO Go or HBO Max, whatever they call it now. Make sure to to go watch that first because we are going to spoiler have a lot of spoilers alerts and um, say a lot of things that we hope that you wouldn't know before watching the film. So. Absolutely. We'll talk about a lot of things. We have a pretty sweet rundown today. Uh, the normal stuff, I mean, we'll talk about some the way they build on the original, um, some of the meaning uh, that, they're, that they're driving at and the continuing of the conversation that the original starts. Uh, so we'll also dive into a lot of the story and the writing. Um, but we also have a couple of special guests that we're bringing on. I'm going to completely butcher uh, their names, but uh, Chris Minguez. Uh, Mendez and Cassandra Lopez, who both work at Weta Workshop and worked on Blade Runner 2049. So I'm very excited to uh, have them on and and pick their brains about what that process was like. I know they worked on like the miniatures um, in a number of ways. Uh, so, you know, we'll have them on about halfway through the show. Um, yeah. So that and other such stuff and things and stuff. And just to get right into it, a quick synopsis of the film, young Blade Runner K's discovery of a long buried secret leads him to track down former Blade Runner Rick Deckard, who's been missing for 30 years. Directed by Dennis Villeneuve, I always I butcher yeah. his name. I do that to every name. Screenplay by Hampton Francher and Michael Green, based on the novel by Philip K. Dick. Cinematography by the great Roger Deakins, which I have some things I want to call out there. Uh, <laughs> starring Ryan Gosling as Kay, Harrison Ford as Rick Deckard, Anna de Armas as Joy, Robin Wright as Lieutenant Joshi, uh, Mackenzie Davis as Mariette, Dave Bautista as Sapper Morton, Sylvia Hoax as Love, Carla Jury as Dr. Anna Stelling, Jared Leto as Neander Wallace, and Edward James Almost as Gaff. I always knew you were special. Maybe this is how. A child of woman born pushed into the world, wanted, loved. And if it were true, I'd be hunted for the rest of my life by someone just like me. 
it's okay to dream a little, isn't it? Not if you're us. I remember watching this in the theater with you and credits roll. The lights slowly come up and we sit kind of letting it wash over us for another 20, 30 seconds before we finally just kind of looked at each other and we're like, I freaking loved it. <laughs> like we were just, you know, super stoked about it. And I don't know if you've seen it since then, but last week, uh, you know, you didn't have a great reaction to the original. I, I believe you said it to, to quote you that it's like eating uh, five star food out of a uh, lunchbox um, and so yeah i'm wondering if uh this how did this play for one uh have you been watching this since then or is this the first time you've rewatched it since the theater no this is i think this is the second time i've seen it outside of the theater mm-hmm. so i watched it once and then again for this episode and it's it's it is a great movie. It is so good. Especially, honestly, it's it's even better having watched the original right before it. Yeah. And honestly, it, it makes me like the original more mm. and respect the 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 premise of the original more, right? So, but there's a lot of amazing things that that this film has that the original obviously didn't and come on, you know, there's 40 years separating them, you know, however, however much. So I, I get it, but the cinematography is incredible. The patience is still there, right? They, they captured a lot of the original feel of like this grandiose, these huge wide shots, right. Of showing the city, showing the debacle that is, that is the world now showing the dirtiness, the, the darkness, the, um, overcastness, uh, and flying you through all of that, they still have a lot of that. So they, they held to that premise, which was really great, but there were so many like more levels to a story and, and excuses of why, you know, he still has to, he's a he's like a K is a detective. He still has to go find things that are difficult to find and, and answer, you know, find clues and, and handle clues and follow up on this and that. And he still has to do the same things that Decker did in the original, but the story just makes more sense. I, I can look away for two seconds and look back and know where I am, you know, and that doesn't make it Mm -hmm. less of an iconic film to me. Like to me, that makes it like almost more because it's, it's more inclusive. Now, you know, we talk ad nauseum on this show about we don't like being handed things, right? We like make me work for it a little bit. And I still think that this film does that. You know, they they visit a lot of stuff that they then follow up on, you know, the buried box at the beginning Mm -hmm. where they follow up on that. Like um, uh, uh, when they keep coming back to his love, like there's there's a there's a bunch of little things that we can get to as we as we go through this. But as a digester, a, a viewer of, of film, I feel immer- as immersed in this world as I did in the original, because you are immersed in that. Mm-hmm. You're never outside of it. There's never barely ever a glint of day. You know, it's, it's very stark and, and they hold to that. And it's very similar in this. So I feel immersed in both, in both worlds, but it's so much easier to follow. I feel more connected to the character. There are more, it feels like there are more layers in this because there are more characters that I care about Mm -hmm. as opposed to like, I don't, in the original, I wasn't sure to care about the replicant that he falls in love with. I wasn't sure. Are they actually in love? 
I, I think, well, they just did it, but I don't know that that means that they're in love, you know, and it just ended up that they were in, in this case, I know who he loves right off the bat. And I can tell that at the beginning, I, and they hammer it home in, with her, uh, in the rain, um, and them trying to kiss and be close. It's like, it's heartbreaking, but at the same time, it's still beautiful. And I got to feel that I got to feel that throughout the whole film so that when, when she dies in the end or dies, when she's destroyed at the end, my God, it's gut wrenching, even though she doesn't even exist. That is a hallmark of a great movie. And it was long, but not, not like it's two hours and 40 minutes or something insane. And it did not feel, I didn't want it to end at the end. I wanted more. Yeah, That's I wouldn't have cut a another, minute off of this, even though it is pushing on three hours. Like, I, there's nothing I would have cut out. I totally agree. I totally agree. I felt like the pacing was, it needed to be what it was. It needed mm-hmm. to be slow at times, but they knew when to speed it up. And that's just a, an amazing uh, piece of directing. Uh, amazing piece. The editing is fantastic. Roger Deakins in this film. Yeah. Tell me what you were thinking whenever you're watching this. Uh, okay. If you don't watch any other moment... In this film, if you have to pick one moment, I would say the best moment of this whole film, like cinematography wise, is this subtle thing that I didn't even I didn't notice any other time they watched it except except right now. Um, at the end, after Kay tells Deckard what Deckard. Thank you. Gosh. After Kay tells Deckard, go go meet your daughter. Right. We hang on Kay. We hang there. We sit there. And right before we cut. The camera tilts ever so slightly to show that something is not right. Like every other shot is completely planned and and very level and very like methodical, almost machine like throughout the whole film, especially when on him, because I mean, he's a machine, he's a replicant, whatever you want to call it. But then when we get to the end, there's just this, this like tiny moment of tilt and then it cuts away. And that's the only moment that I remember that happening throughout the film. It might've happened some other point. I don't know, but it's just, this such a subtle thing. I mean, you can point to any other amazing movements he does, you know, or like, you know, slow pull-ins from behind, you know, when he's, when he's like doing the tests and things like that, they're all beautiful and wonderful or like outside of his apartment, pushing in through the window as the light comes on. All of these things are just beautiful that, not necessarily would be in a, in a script, but someone like Roger Deakins will say, we need an establishing of this is his home. We're, we're a voyeur. We're going to push in as we see the light come on. And now we're inside of the apartment, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. You know, like they're important and you, but you would kind of expect them that moment. That's what makes him someone like him. Great. is something like that. Yeah, and it's funny. I've I've seen cinematographers discuss that thing you're talking about, just a slightly off-axis uh, tilt, and it apparently permeates the entire film. Like, oh, there's okay. all these things well, where it's like one degree we we we're, we've tilted, and you don't necessarily necessarily always see that tilt happen. Um, sometimes they've just simply uh, created the 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 Dutch angling, if you will that we begin and end with it already in there uh it's not something i would say i overly notice there's times where i can feel it um but then sometimes it's hard to feel uh if they're doing it or not just based on the angle that they're choosing and so yeah i mean i think it's a really interesting 
technique when you're discussing humans versus replicants because replicants are bioengineered humans and you can make of that what you will. Uh, I think the intention is to say that they are completely created in the laboratory. And with that, you know, they're, they're like humans, but not quite. And so I think they're kind of just playing with that in a visual way, right? We're, we're presenting something that is real, but it's not quite real. It's not quite right. Something is just like you said, slightly off. And yeah, I think, I, yeah, I think that's super cool that, yeah. And I, I agree like this, they, they clearly paid attention to the original and they did it a lot of service. Uh, they built on it and in so many ways that makes this a much more satisfying watch, even though this is almost 50 minutes longer, it's still, sorry, it's still easier to watch. You know, it, you don't feel the tedium and a lot of it, it, and it was really interesting watching this right after we recorded our episode. Cause I haven't watched it since the, the theater, since we saw it that one time, it just kind of hung in my mind, but I couldn't remember really why I loved it so much. Uh, and I was a little afraid, like maybe it's going to bore me this time. Whatever wowed me the first time wasn't going to hold up because sometimes I'll watch a film and I'll really, really enjoy it. And then on repeat viewings, it kind of just starts to deteriorate. Um, whether it's, I'm just tired of the visuals or the the story and theme just don't come across as strong as they did. But in this case, all of that and more was just right there. Uh, and so after discussing some of the things that they were doing in the original watching this, it was so clear. They took all of that and said, we're going to do that and then some. We're going to do that and build on top of it. Whether you're talking about like the visuals, right? We still have a lot of that heavy atmosphere, the neon lights, the rain, the weather, the snow. In this case, I don't remember there, if there was snow in the original, but here in the same day, like we experienced rain and snow just depending on the location. Um, and then, of course, you get on to, uh, I think it's Vegas, right? And suddenly we're, it's, you can feel the radiation and, and, <laughs> all around you right um even though he's taking this reading and it's like the radiation is nominal uh whatever that means to a replicant and so they they built on all of that right they still keep that noir hard-boiled detective that you were talking about earlier right he's following the clues uh the flower leads him to inspect the ground and he discovers a box and the box contains a body the body shows signs of birth but they discover it's a serial number. It's a replicant. It can't, it can't give birth. Um, and it just continues down this path. One small clue at a time to all these discoveries and more questions about replicants and their place in the world and, uh, what the world is turning into. Uh, and it's all there in that noir kind of, you know, aesthetic, but then on top of that, they build on the ideas, right? The, the, the questions on what it means to be human and what it means to be a replicant and what are the differences really, um, it builds on that uh, with Joy, uh, and I'm really excited to talk about her later because I think she's the most interesting character in, in the entire film uh, for a whole host of reasons. And then, but on top of that, they honor all the world building of the original. They don't say, okay, we're going to wipe away everything that was done before us because, you know, we think it's whack or whatever. <laughs> like they, they take it all and they're like, yeah, the, the original was like Nexus sixes. And now we have Nexus eights and they, they open it up right now. We have open-ended lives instead of, uh, they're dying, but they also build into it. The idea of, uh, why they opened, opened their life span up, uh, instead of, 
them being afraid uh, of them. Instead, it's like we need more labor. And if we keep killing them, we're not going to be able to build out the labor that we need to conquer the universe. And that's kind of Wallace's whole goal is expansion and, and conquering everything. And so they build on that way. They honor all the war we're building with also just these homages, right? The photos, he's, he finds these photos and he inspects them for clues. All the aesthetics and the visual styling, Japanese fused with Western styling. Um, and they continue using these really large minimalistic and monolithic type structures. Um, the DNA serial numbers themselves lifted right out of the original, right? They put it under the microscope and they start like diving in. The baseline tests are still around. And now they're more complex and weird and awesome. <laughs> like it's such a, uh, if I were in that room taking that test, I would flip out, man. Um, but watching him kind of go through the baseline test, it's, it's chaotic, um, and, and kind of beautiful in a way. Uh, it's just genius. Um, and I love the, the using of the, uh, uh, the voice commands. They kind of make a return, right? In the original, he's, analyzing the uh the, the photographs and he's having this whiskey and he's he's like uh zoom mm-hmm. in center reframe yep pan left uh which they they bring back right yep. the way that she's remotely operating like the bombs in the in the wasteland uh it's very similar to to what he was doing um and same thing when he's remote controlling the drone looking scouting uh, uh vegas and he's doing that i also love that he so in the original, uh, Deckard is saying, you know, pan left 45 degrees or whatever it is. I don't even think he says degrees. I think he just says pan left 45. And in, and in this, K says tilt up. And that's camera language. Like if you don't know, we've talked about this once or twice before on the show, but it's common for people who aren't used to camera language to say pan up, pan, pan right, pan left, pan down. Like there's very specific commands for for camera language and it's a detail that denny of all directors uh seems like he would nail because panning is a left to right thing if you think of your head uh like the camera itself and you look left to right right you're sitting in your seat and you just look left to right that's panning that's what you do if you look up that's tilting up and down is whenever you kind of look up and down but then you can also boom up and down so if you're seated and you decide to stand up now you're booming up or if you decide to seat yourself from standing, you're booming down. Like there's movement involved. And these are all very specific camera languages to make sure you and your cam op or your DP are on the same page. Because if you start saying pan up, then you're signaling to them for one. Okay. They don't really know how to ask for exactly what they want. And so now I'm going to have to make sure I understand what exactly it is that they're wanting because they're already using the wrong terminology. Whereas, you know, if you start saying tilt up, they're like, okay, I know exactly what you want. Um, you're not wanting to reframe the entire camera. You just want it to look up. Uh, whereas if you say boom up and look and, and tilt down, now that's a cinematic movement, right? Because now you're lifting the camera while also pointing it down and you're creating this feeling of rising or being towered over. Like that's a very specific type of camera language. And so it's a very small thing uh, that they did in the script that I'm like, they're, 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 they're being crows. And I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. And it just, the, the, um, the hearkening back to the original mm-hmm. is done in, in a subtle way, but in a, in a way where, you know, people who know the film, they catch, yeah. you know, that where they're, it's an homage almost, but they are leaving it behind in a way, you know, they weren't trying to make the same movie. 
um, but they also weren't trying to abandon it, mm. which I think is really, really brilliant thing to do. And I think that, you know, I think a lot of other filmmakers that, that do this kind of thing, or a lot of the studios that do this, where you either rehash something or you're making a, a an extension of uh, something that was loved in the past, you should learn from this, yeah. you know? I mean, yes, let's have homages, right? But we are making something new, but it needs to live in the same world, right? It needs to be in the same like the same universe, right? Of where this is. Like, I feel like this is a futuristic universe mm-hmm. of the first version. The first version had CTR screens, CRT screens, whatever. And this has flat screens. Um, it had flying cars, but they were much more rudimentary. This has drones that didn't, you know, like there was you know, the lighting is different, is more colorful than it was there. Yeah. 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 So I, I, I feel like I'm in that world, but it is a future version of that world, which is really, really great. And I can name a couple of other, of other studios (laughs) uh, and a couple of other projects that, that has not happened. And you feel like you're in a totally different universe for, you know, uh, as like a little Easter egg there in those regards. And it feels jarring. It feels incorrect from the get go. From yeah. the very beginning. So, yeah. No, it's a big I deal. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And Denny's great, man. I'm I'm such a huge fan of his, to be completely transparent here. Like, mm-hmm. I love his camera language is always incredibly strong. Like, he's, he's famous. If you go watch almost any of his movies, whether you're talking about Enemy, Prisoners, Sicario, uh, he does a lot of these long, slow camera pushes, right? And, it, and in this case, in this circumstance, and I think this generally works, but... It lets us kind of slow down and just observe a little bit more. We dial into the emotions on screen. Um, and it also allows action to really feel like action. Cause the one thing that he's, he's really great about is, especially in this film, there's no gratuitous action. Everything is well placed. Like the, the gunshots, the bullets, the missiles. It's not just doing it for effect. Everything has a purpose. Uh, and so you never feel like you're really in an action film. And if you're going to do that and get the most bang out of your buck, it goes so much further whenever you do slow down the camera language, whenever things do, you know, spend more time and you can kind of control the viewer's heartbeat in that way, right? The more you're just kind of settled in. And then whenever these explosions do pop off, they feel that much more dramatic and serious uh, instead of just something that isn't very threatening. And so even in the opening sequence, when Kay gets stabbed, uh, you feel that a little bit more and you don't know what that really means in the context of this, of this world. And I think they use that to kind of spell out that he's, he's a replicant. He's not human, but every, every time he gets hurt, every time anyone gets hurt, it comes through a little bit stronger. And I think a lot of that has to do, uh, not just with the performance and the writing, but also, uh, with the cinema language that they're using throughout the, throughout the entire film. And how, how do you like, you remember, so the building in the, uh, in the first one, right. The towering, like tilting building or whatever. Yeah. Now, now we have that still. And yet there are three gigantic, massive towers that dwarf that one sitting right behind it. Crazy scale brilliant brilliant setting that world up we're going to put you right back in that world but there's more now there's bigger there's more ominous there's you know so many other things but that it's such an homage and you don't you know that building was such a focal point of the first film it would be really tough to not show it yeah in this film and they show it but just a little bit 
They just give you and what's, give you a little. Right? And what's crazy is that's an actual set piece. I know. It wasn't CG. Yeah. And to that end, maybe we should uh, pause and and see if we can get Chris and Cassie on the line to discuss, like, because that was literally what they were building. They were building that set piece and uh, probably a few others. Yeah. Would love to. Let's do it. First of all, Chris and Cassie, thank you so much for working or for giving us some time to, to discuss this project. Um, y'all both work at Weta Workshop. Is that right? Yep. Nice. So I'd love to hear some of your backgrounds. Like, where did you come from um, before I kick into Cotton Eye Joe, Joe here? Uh, and like, how did you get to where you are right now? For the both of us, we used to do a lot of uh, conventions and things back in the States. And eventually we met up with uh, the Weta crew doing that convention circuit and ended up working for the booth. And like I was doing shows around North America, working for the company. Um, and then I went to Korea and like Mexico and stuff and eventually had them uh, fly us down to New Zealand because we were useful. What were you making at these conventions? Like what was, so most of them would be Comic-Con. What a workshop has a very large consumer product space. So making statues and just interacting with the fans and stuff and, so that was kind of our our intro into the company, but it wasn't like we weren't creative people beforehand. Right. Um, we were always making stuff. Part of a stage combat troupe back in uh, Seattle, doing uh, jousting shows and things. So playing with swords as a uh, a hobby. <laughs> Cassie, you were part of this troupe as well. Yeah, um, I definitely was. Um, I'm quite small, so my role in the um, stunt fighting and sword fighting thing was usually being tossed around and I always got to win because you know there has to be a bad guy and usually the bad guy that tosses around the tiny female um gets their butts kicked so that was glorious (laughs) I loved it um and we also um in the states had a small um business making like custom props and costumes as well so we kind of already had a little bit of um knowledge into kind of making um props and costumes and stuff especially for um conventions so obviously a lot of people cosplay especially in seattle there's a huge community for that but we also got to do a couple of like not booth modeling but you know how you have cosplayers literally they get paid just to make the costumes for um especially packs that's amazing (laughs) You guys were um, were both um, working in these booths or whatever, and then and did y'all come go to Weta at the same time? Was it separate? Have y'all been there different times? Yeah. Um, so go ahead, Chris. Yeah. So we both joined at the same time, and that was through our our costuming business. Like cool. we've been in New Zealand now for just over seven years, but back in Seattle, we were doing kind of the same thing when we were traveling and and just kind of working. I mean, this wasn't a business that was really supporting itself this is something that we were doing on the side with a number mm-hmm. of friends that were um, in the same interests and hobbies and everybody trying to upskill in different ways. So before I moved to New Zealand, I was actually a photojournalist um, working for a newspaper um, doing a lot of photography. So that's the other side of my background was, uh, was all this camera work and stuff. Interesting. And so I guess pulling you all into Blade Runner 2049 was a bit of a, a no brainer. Um, on their part, because especially, you know, you, Chris, being having this well-rounded background between your photography background and your ability to, to sculpt and model. What was that process like in terms of getting involved in the project? And then 
Was there ever a question that they were going to build what we call miniatures or was that a process that they had to feel out first? Was there a bit of an auditioning for, for what a workshop to get that kind of project? Uh, so kind of back up pre Blade Runner, we were working on a, uh, a kid show uh, that used practical effects and miniature effects that would drop in CG characters, which is a remake of an old show and it's called Thunderbirds are go. And so we had oh a model God, shop yeah. already set up. And um, that was run by by Stephen and Joaquin and Ben. And I was there to help with with miniatures. And once we became a really tight team, that's where we kind of expanded doing bidding on other miniature jobs. Um, and one of those was, of course, Blade Runner. Like that was a big production uh, happening in Budapest, which is quite far from New Zealand, obviously. And they wanted to shoot the visual effects at the same time as the rest of the film, which is crazy. Like. Um, that movie was a very tidy job the way that they, they ran the whole thing. Like we finished our visual effects miniatures in December of 2016 and the movie came out in 2017. Whoa. Like that's crazy. It was crazy. So, and a lot of that, like when you read through the art book, which I'm sure you guys might've seen, they actually, instead of doing a bunch of wild color grading and stuff, they just put an orange filter on the camera to, shoot it orange <laughs> what so so were you did you so you're you guys handled the uh worked on the miniatures i mean was was deacons were you on set with deacons were you like watching him do his thing no okay that would have been amazing but because we had our visual effects to uh to shoot we were doing a similar skype call thing with mm with our art directors back to them simultaneously. So basically they'd spend oh, an wow. entire day shooting the film and then they would see our rushes of uh, the stuff we're shooting and seeing if it matches back and forth. And so like nobody slept. It was crazy. Oh, gosh. Uh, it was fine for me because I'm just a model maker. So <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, we'd be there until but, what, yeah. sometimes like midnight or something Midnight, one o'clock in the morning. Wow. Yeah. We, waiting for schedules to align and things. But yeah, so we had a whole lot of stuff to live up to being that we were creating something from the Blade Runner universe and we were doing it with practical effects. Um, so that was a kind of a step forward for us in our careers going, okay, we're not just making a kid's show anymore with like campy, it has to look scratch built for the, uh, for the universe. Like we're now paying homage to what is arguably the greatest miniatures ever used in film. And we're just trying to update them, right? Uh, expand the universe that's already there uh, with a bit of age. That's so funny that you said that, man, because that <laughs> I'd say almost exactly what I said verbatim <laughs> to Wes about how that, how this film feels right. You know, irrespect, like not even taking talking to you guys into account, we were talking about how did it feel to watch this film after we had just watched the original. I said it felt like a a future version of the first universe, right? Felt like I was still in that universe, only there was bigger things, more things, right? So when we see the we see the the angled building, but then we see the tall towers behind it, you know, like that were had been built in the interim between the two or something like it just feels so real and so amazing. And it's hard to tell that, that these are miniatures, that they're not CG. It just looks so 
like amazing. I'm curious, like how much referencing were you able to do with the first one? Uh, did they give you models, photos, behind the scenes stuff? Did you have access to the actual original uh, miniatures or was it just we're going to go and look at it a little bit and just kind of go from there? So we did an awful lot of research into the world, obviously. And Stephen, the art director, he put an awful lot of work into Philip K. Dick back lore as well. So went into like, what is an expanded universe? Like what is off world, right? And, and whatever ties into the Blade Runner world. We were thinking we might be doing the Tyrell building as well, the old one from the original movie, but that was kind of terrifying in that you have to get it exactly right. So that one is completely CG. We didn't have to touch that hmm. and try to make something that was already perfect again. Um, but we did do the Wallace building. And so the big, big reveal that you see through those three tall towers, I think the scale of that in reality would be about three kilometers in the air. <laughs> I and think the so, tower is five meters tall, I think, when we put it all together. Uh, I was going to ask the, how big. The LAPD building was five meters tall. The there Wallace Tower Sorry. was only about three. <laughs> um, so three meters is like roughly nine or ten feet. Nine feet. Uh, but those are those big triangular buildings. And what's what's crazy about those is when you get to that kind of scale, there's no detail in something that large when you're trying to represent it as a small thing. Uh, and so that one was was probably one of the simpler builds in that you couldn't just cover it in ernies and make it just just oozing with detail and rust and things there's only lights like on the top level mm -hmm. which we did with little fiber optic cables but like if you were to scale those up to real size they'd be like about as big around as my house <laughs> if you were actually taking a yeah. scale reference of the diameter of a like 0.3 millimeter fiber optic cable for a light that size but, you know, you have to actually let it read on screen. Um, the way we lit that one was by just having a very, very subtle glow underneath, like it's the city lights. Because in, of course, the original Blade Runner universe and into the uh, 2049, what we see is that it's a largely abandoned city. There's only life at the surface level. And all of these high rises basically are completely uninhabited wastelands. And so there's no light coming from building to building. It's all coming from underneath. And so when you scale that up to basically you're in the atmosphere, <laughs> it's quite difficult. And our lighting guy, Rob Kerr, like legend in, in New Zealand lighting, when he was lighting this, like it was a really big challenge because he had the tiniest amount of lights on the ground bouncing off of the ground and then back up. And we're running uh, motion control rigs through these. So we're actually running a giant DSLR camera on a slow shutter speed that's moving at the the tiniest amount of speed and it got so dark or yeah it was it was lit so low that the grid in the studio it's like all these aluminium rafters and things they actually had to put big black blankets on there because that was reflecting too much light oh my gosh god <laughs> are you able awesome. to say what uh cameras and lenses uh that y'all were shooting with i don't remember exactly i wasn't involved in camera department i would have known if you would ask me a couple of years ago but i completely <laughs> forgot um but they are they were canon cameras um with zeiss lenses and we had a whole whole bunch of them different uh -huh. focal lengths mostly prime lenses but mm -hmm. we were essentially shooting uh 8k but as raw dslr images so <laughs> wow I, I don't know how you do that <laughs> it's crazy <laughs> it's a lot of data 
back up a bit. So the okay. DOP, um, Alex Funky, is is the man when it comes to miniature photography, right? He he ran all of the miniatures, well, not all of them, but most of the miniatures for uh, Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And he won awards for like doing the Abyss with James Cameron and stuff. Oh, like yeah. if, if you want miniatures, he's the guy. And I learned so much from him. I came in as a photography background. This guy's an artist. <laughs> <laughs> Got um, it. The technical side of like what they had to do for Lord of the Rings miniatures is crazy. You'd be rolling on these these motion control rigs that are largely hand built monstrosities, but you're actually running film. And you don't get enough light onto the film running one motion control pass. So you actually have to load the, the film back into the camera and make sure that every frame is actually lining up with where it was in the room with that motion control rig. Wow. And they had to run it through two or three times to get enough light on the film. That's insane. How is that even possible? I mean, that's some real old school. Wizards with DOS. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's the background and that's the caliber of people that were involved in this project. We actually used the same motion control rig that was used uh, for Lord of the Rings. The thing was, uh, it was destroyed in a fire a number of years before when it was in storage. So it had to kind of be rebuilt and rehashed. And so it was re- renamed the Phoenix. <laughs> oh, awesome. yeah, of course. <laughs> Rising from the ashes. Yeah. Uh, but this thing is like, it's the biggest, heaviest thing. It like, looks like a predated car robot. <laughs> oh Except gosh. that the... Uh, the extension arm is, you know, a piece of steel about that wide by about that wide. And it you'll have to see some of the behind the scenes pictures of this thing because the reach on this was incredible. But the thing was, it still ran on DOS. <laughs> That's why you said they were DOS wizards. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Now it's easy to make a camera. Well, I say easy because I don't know any better. Um, <laughs> I'm a practical effects guy. Uh, but. To get a digital camera to interface with a motion control rig now mm-hmm. is, you know, that that road has been paved. There yeah. are there are experts in those fields. But what we had to do was luckily not run on film. Um, we're running uh, these large DSLR images, um, but we still have to match every frame with where it is in the room. And what I mean by that is we're, we're actually running uh, visual effects passes. So, you know, when you see like a digital um, visual effects shot, mm-hmm. uh, you can kind of see the layers being added and added and added. We just did that, but practically. So we would light, say, the LAPD tower. We would light it in different ways, but run the camera through for the exact path over and over and over again. And trying to get that to line up was a big challenge for a lot of the team. So when we would say want to have all the lights flashing on the building we have all the fiber optics hooked up to flash in sync with like let's say every seventh frame on the camera or every 20th frame on the camera or whatever Um, now you have to math that backwards to say okay what is my shutter speed Mm -hmm. because if we're not running the house lights on and we're just flashing these things it's going to be a really slow shot to try to burn in some of that data onto the image sensor And so if, say, you've got a one-second exposure, the camera has to travel the same distance in that one second as it would if that was a 30th-second exposure. And so that all has to scale mathematically perfectly back to the motion control rig so that when you put these digital files together, 
all you can do is just blend them and you know that you're landing on the same spot over and over again. And that in theory makes it easier for the um, the editors to add like rain effects and and whatever they want. If they want that building to pop more, if they want a spotlight to run across somewhere, all you're doing is just blending those layers together. And do you know how they're they're they are blending these layers together? Is that like a multiply effect or something more sophisticated in the uh, the technical arsenal? I do not know. Okay. Um, it would be amazing to find out. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we just sent them off with a big package of visual effects shots, and then they edited them in. Um, I think another one of the reasons that the the miniatures got away with as much as they did is because digital technology is so good. It hides all of our sins, right? But it never felt like you weren't looking at a miniature because most of the visual effects shots in Blade Runner are completely digital. But some of those digital effects shots have our miniatures in them. And how we did that was by a, uh, a technology called photogrammetry. So that sounds fake. I think you're making this up now. <laughs> Photogrammetry. Uh, yeah. No, <laughs> just kidding. Photogrammetry is where you take hundreds of pictures of an object. Either you put it on a turntable and turn it around, or you just take a camera and take a whole bunch of pictures of it. And there's digital software that will take and map that onto a three-dimensional object, just taking the pixels and figuring out the space. And so James Doyle, one of our, our 3D wizards at Weta at the time, he was in charge of the photogrammetry department of the miniatures visual effects shots. And so let's say when we would um, dress a very large set, it's probably uh, six meters wide by eight meters long or something, great big giant trash mesa. He would actually set the camera on the motion control rig and take a series of photos all over it. And so you have a visual map of where everything is. Um, and then by changing the angle, you do that two or three times and you have a, uh, a map, a digital landscape of the shapes and the things, um, not down to like every pixel, but it gives you a, a reference. But we also did that on a macro scale with every single little object that we created. And so that gives you a photo reel reference of a real surface on a 3D model. Um, and so we provided those as assets as well to um, the filmmakers so that they could litter their landscape with things that blended into our landscape. They also built uh, full scale sets and we got photo references of those while they were filming them. And we're like, oh, we got to change our little miniatures to match that. It's like where Kay's spinner comes and crashes down. Most of the shot leading up to that out the window shot and like looking down shot, those are all miniatures. But then obviously it comes and crashes and then that's the digital. And then he, he exits the spinner and then they're on a real size set. Um, so if you look closely, the uh, what we call the ladder shapes, which are like this insides of these these stripped out starships, uh, they do look slightly different between those shots. Interesting. <laughs> so if, if I could ask you this, that's really interesting. Leads me to a question, if that's OK. And I don't know, either of you could answer this. Maybe Cassie could answer this. When you do a film like this. And there's so many variable variables and there's so many little details and everything as amazing as this is, we're all human. And so do you ever go back and you watch this and you, you notice, you know, you probably notice more than obviously Wes or I would, which, and we probably notice more than like the normal viewer, but you go back and you watch 2049 or any other film you work on and you think, oh man, you know what? We should have done this or we should have done that. Or, oh, I see this, that oh gosh, darn it. We, we fix this for next time or something like that. Is there a learning ex experience that you guys get 
in, you know, looking back? Yeah, I think almost every time. Um, I mean, with the rare exception, I've got to say Blade Runner 2049 knocked it out of the park. Um, But there's always going to be little things that you, you know, you nitpick and you go, oh, my goodness. Um, I think for me, one of the ones is so Blade Runner was a massive learning experience for me because I um, am always on the pre-production side, but I was usually doing costumes and casting and everything. So miniatures was a little bit of a newer field for me. And my very first little like um, antennae topper that we put on a lot of the um, buildings surrounding the LAPD building, it was just like actually super glued together and like nuts and bolts. And it looked bad when you look at it close up. Like it is not (laughs) great, but from far away, it actually is quite eye catching. Mm. And I actually was able to spot it out in like the movie poster and then brought it to like, the convention, um, I think it was, what was it? I think that it was the 28, 2017 one that we went to. They had uh, one of the miniatures from Blade Runner, and then they had one of my building toppers. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. That is like literally <laughs> the worst thing that I've ever made. And now like hundreds of thousands of people are being able to see it up close. It's like, oh, no. <laughs> so I'm cool. just like in the background at this convention being like, are they going to know that that's just a piece of wood and that there's a ton of screws sticking out of it? (laughs) And like the paint job, like the paint job was okay. But again, it was like, okay, you have, I think Steven Saunders gave me like 10, 15 minutes per one of these building toppers. Cause like, it's a massive set. So you have to make quite a few. So yeah, like you do end up, you know, nitpicking things, I guess, but in the overall scale, you're not going to be able to tell at the end of the day, like unless, (laughs) It's something like a hero's sword Mm. and, you know, they pull it out of the scabbard and it's like a really cool hero shot and the sword is all wobbly. That's the only one that gets me no matter what. I'm like, oh, no, they did not replace that stunt sword. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. And so I am curious, uh, can you talk a little bit about the process of creating some of these miniatures, like the modeling? Is there a lot of iterating between the modeling uh, and when it gets on set? Uh, and how, when you start working with it, uh, what does that all look like from beginning to final touches? So at the beginning, we get a, uh, a previs, a very rough pre-visualization shot of how they want things to line up, like the pacing of the shot that they need, the building elements that need to be in those. And so from there, each of the largest buildings is uh, kind of picked out. Um, and we had uh, three different 3D modelers on at the model shop making those buildings in um, 3D, but making them able to be flat packed because largely those components were all laser cut mm-hmm. um, for the large architectural buildings. And then we'd go make a uh, proper wooden frame inside of them, like the Wallace Tower. That one had to be a steel frame. Um, so that's all welded together. So it Dang. it really depended on the shot. So for all the Trash Mesa stuff, that's largely kind of the same things recycled over and over but broken down in very different ways but the uh la and LAPD tower itself uh were run through different renditions um from design all the way to fabrication but once it came to say me um it would be okay we've got the the basic building now we need to to add all of the the greeblies the nernies all the stuff all the mung right uh, I believe in the original Blade Runner, it was all called Ridley Wrap. <laughs> you just keep wrapping the buildings with stuff. 
until they look sci-fi. Um, and so we needed to do a nod to that. Uh, and being a, a photographer from a small town, when I moved to a larger city, I always just was enamored by the the collection of detail hanging off the side of an old building. And each detail is a story element, right? And so we had a small army of model makers working on all these things, which was incredibly cool because it kind of enabled you to to reinforce the fact that this is an inhabited area, right? Everything that's ever happened to these buildings is done by people of different times and different ideas of what's good enough or with different resources. One of the greatest references that uh, we got was we had a, uh, a relatively substantial earthquake here in Wellington in 2016 while we were working on Blade Runner. Like those of us that were on set were actually evacuated from the studio because the highway out there was starting to flood. And so there was a bit of damage here in Wellington. And then you could actually go and see these buildings. They weren't horribly damaged, but there was... Um, a number of apartment buildings right next to the highway driving through downtown Wellington that all kind of had cracked windows because as the buildings shifted, they all broke. And what was incredible to me was seeing the different solutions that everyone with the same problem came up with because this entire tower had nice plywood over it. This entire tower was just tape. And it was just like the building managers had different resources to fix the same problems. And so we kind of applied that look all throughout Blade Runner um, is, OK, well, this guy got a good deal on the air conditioning units or whatever. Or there's only one person living in here. And so you see all these electrical cables running into one apartment and everyone else is completely ignored. <laughs> and it's just like broken windows or no lights on and stuff. And so those types of references is what works to camera. And I guess I can speak a little bit to how we decided where to put those kinds of details. Because if you wrap that around four sides of a building and you only see two sides of that building, well, you've wasted half your time. Hmm. Um, so a lot of these buildings were only made two-sided or three-sided. And that meant we could actually get into the back because they're actually lit by one giant LED strip on the inside. And then there's just little cutouts for the windows. So the whole thing's essentially a lampshade. Um, and that way you're not trying to light little tiny windows. You're just blocking off things and adding colors to things and, and the like. So we could get in and actually add all those little elements of like, you know, maybe in one person's home, you know, the light's a little bit different color. So you just add a little like sheet um, strip of like the gel lighting for cameras and stuff. Um, or again, you just put a little piece of tape and you're like, well, that one is boarded up. So <laughs> quite fun. But how we decided how that would work is that um, Alex Funky and I, we built, before we actually were on, on the studio set, we just built a, a little black tent in the model shop and we're running camera tests with like um, just little party foggers and things to kind of get the atmospheric haze as well, just for photographs, just using my camera as a, a stepping stone into what we should scale up and what w would be a waste of time because it doesn't work to camera. And so we did this a number of times trying to figure out what our ground dressing would be for different elements. And um, like Cassie was mentioning, that the uh, the building toppers that we developed were not necessarily in the previs or the design, but we needed to break that that perfectly straight line off the top of all these buildings because it was just it just didn't look good. Um, and so I knocked up a bunch of these um, 
building toppers, threw it on one of these buildings, and then we lit it in different ways. And trying to do the, the warm glow from underneath the building and a cool glow from on top kind of helped. The thing that, that really sold it, though, was giving it a very f- fragmented paint job. Basically, it was like a kind of a shiny black, kind of a uh, gunmetal um, chrome black. So it had a bit of specular highlights to it. But then we just hit it with a few different colored lights and then left alone. And that worked to camera. You look at it up close and it just looks like you didn't try. (laughs) But when you see in the shot in in the movie, it looks great because we made a visual effect we didn't make the world's best building topper <laughs> yeah yeah it doesn't matter what it looks like in real life you look at some of these things up close and yeah they were really rough that's why um seeing some of them you know in a cabinet display under like proper lighting you're like no no it was meant for like middle of the night like shoot not for daytime look at it really close <laughs> and so whenever you cassie you said you worked on you know painting uh some of these buildings is that process really just as, as simple as, you know, it sounded like Chris was describing where you're just kind of eyeballing it until you feel happy with it? Um, or It's a bit of both because, like, obviously you always need, like, your base layers for whatever part um, you're doing, whether it's, like, going to be Trash Mesa or whether it's LAPD building and stuff. Um, so you kind of have these, like, solid colors that you start out with as base colors. And then a lot of it, like, especially for, like, Trash Mesa, honestly, we had, like, just rows of different paints um, in spray bottles. And they would have different consistencies of paints as well. Some of them would be thinner. Some of them would be thicker. um, And you would turn the knobs on them to kind of get, like, random spray patterns. And sometimes it was, for the final touches, honestly, as easy as just grabbing some of them and just haphazardly spraying them. Because then you're not actually focusing on one area Mm. and making it look almost too pristine you're actually just letting the paint do the work for you sometimes it's adding a little bit more detail so like on some of um we cast these cute little shipping containers um that were about probably about that big i can't remember where we got them from but they're like one of my favorite things we had to cast and we would actually put quite a bit of detail because some of those would be quite close to screen sometimes and that was actually um, adding up layers of paint but underneath the paint we actually glued on some rock salt so that then once the layers were all built up, we actually just like wiped away the rock salt and you would have this like really grimy, crusty um, paint job. And you really didn't have to do that much work. It was all because of the technique that you used. Cool. Yeah. So it is, it's a bit of both. It depends on what scene it is. If it's going to mm. be something a little bit more pristine, then you're going to have to very precisely add the paint. But sometimes, honestly, it was... Um, it was you would see it on, you know, the previs on camera shot, because a lot of times we'd be setting up at night um, looking at how it would look in frame. And then you'd kind of add to camera there, because, um, again, like what Chris was saying, you don't want to add paint everywhere if it's not going to be seen except for, you know, a narrow pathway. Um, that just doesn't make sense. Yeah. So on set, we um, our master painter, uh, Jen, she was in charge of all that stuff. It was it was quite entertaining because uh, her and Stephen would uh, go out of building with these spritzer bottles and she'd just be like, Stephen, get away. And he's like, I just need it to be done. And she's like, no, it needs to look good. And so this, this amount of was great. But as an art director, he would always put in all of these things are looking really just far too flat to camera. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a professional painter, we had two or three on set, um, Lauren and, and Jen and stuff. And we 
would look at something. It looks absolutely amazing. And then we'd take it into my little tent and photograph it. And it just looks like every other building. And so one of the things we learned was that you really have to overdo the paint, especially uh, shooting really flat for uh, color grading later. You want to pop those colors. You need to be able to reach into the different uh, mists and get stuff. So we ended up with like a, a blue building and green building. And so it was just picking different buildings and being like, this one needs to be red. And you look at it through the rain and everything doesn't look like there's a red and a green at a blue building because they're just slightly different tones of, of the uh, dystopian future that mm. you're flying through. But everything would have just looked like a, all the same color gray. Because the atmosphere and is create is desaturating, kind of muting everything so much that you you can afford to punch it up enough because it's going to yeah. dial it back within in, uh, in camera. That's so that's Wallace building shot where you're you've got the two Wallace uh, towers like running beside the camera. Mm -hmm. The camera's really close to the miniature, and that's like closer than you should be to be able to trick it. So you needed to have the tiniest little aperture with the lowest light ever mm -hmm. to try to get that in focus. And that side of the building, like each one of those panels, was supposed to be like freaking thirty meters tall or something ridiculous, right? Just big giant slabs <laughs> of granite. Um, and granite's pretty boring. So we needed to do some subtle washes to be able to kind of pop some of those and seem like they were quarried from different areas. What Steven and I do when we're on set is we've got a bit of a shorthand where he's usually at the monitor barking commands at me. And people are like, God, these guys are really rude to each other. But really, it's just because we work so well. Like he's my eyes and I'm his hands. So he's he's directing what I'm supposed to be doing. And so he'd be working with Lauren on the camera the same way. And he developed this thing with grease pencils and little like automotive touch-up clear coat paints and things and it wasn't so much that we were changing the color of individual panels we were changing the reflectivity and the just the texture of the panels and so when you wash pie them what you're seeing is the reflection off the ground in this no light scenario but after we we got the shot and all of that was directed to camera because you can't predict any of that right it just mm -hmm. it didn't look right we go in and fix it till it looks good and when we rolled these things out of the stage and looked at what we had done, it looks like a oh. toddler just ruined the side of this building in a very small area. I was just like, oh, yeah, well, you know, that's what we're we're tricking the camera into seeing something decent. But you look at it in reality and you're like, oh, my. But that's also the the beauty and uh, precision of previs, right? Because you went in knowing exactly what you were going to need. And so you can afford to just kind of stare down through the lens instead of uh, trying to build everything perfect beforehand and then figure it out. Oh, this is where the camera might look best. Instead, you went in knowing where you wanted the camera. Yeah. So it's, it's knowing exactly what you want to uh, execute on the day and being able to shoot and have good turnarounds and, and all this. So... Like we actually had our main shoot stage divided in half because we were shooting different miniatures on either side. In order to get the haze right, though, uh, we actually had to get people to go up and tape off all of the air conditioning and ducting work out. Uh -huh. Because when you haze up an area and you're doing a three-hour motion control shot, if that haze drops and, and, and raises, what you see is blinking because the, the, the lighting is changing and... So it was really, really important. Like we had a guy on set that literally walked around with this expensive little device that measured the haze. And his job was to add haze to make sure it's super even according to his crazy little device thing. Is that how long your shots were? Were they usually like three hours long or? 
because you'd have they'd take to forever. Do a full pass. Yeah. So like the three hour hot set was crazy, and sometimes we would have to uh, get the set and then because we can't change anything but lighting between passes. Because if you go walking across that set, stuff has moved, and so our lighting would be raised and lowered, and we'd have to get all this well orchestrated so that you couldn't touch it. And for like the K spinner scene, we actually dropped in some bright orange screens that were hit with uh, UV lights. So it was this bright orange key. That way they could put the spinner between these models, but this had to raise up. And then, yeah, so they didn't have to go in and roto around every weird Dude, foreground. That's so out. cool. That is um, so cool. So that was one of the wild things. But we also had some, some major challenges once we were actually on set because we couldn't use those spritzer bottle paints as liberally anymore once we're actually in a hermetically sealed room with a bunch of crew. Uh, you can't just go spray painting stuff because everybody's going to be breathing this in, right? And so we had to adapt our, our things. And um, our master painter, painter, Jen, she's got all these cool tricks in the bag for this because she's worked on sets forever. And um, one of the things that we, we developed together was um, this technique of using uh, spices. So there's a lot of spice. <laughs> um, so when we have a big rusty element plugged into a pile of trash, it has to look like that element has been degrading and everything's falling down around the ground, right? It's just peeling open um, as scrappers are going in and getting what's what's useful. Really good reference of the uh, ships getting torn apart on shore and stuff, people cutting those up for scrap pieces and things. So what you do is you'd kind of get an area wet and you just take a little handful of cinnamon and throw it on there. And then you could um, spritz that cinnamon down. And what's going to happen is that it's going to clump onto the surface, but then it's going to act like iron oxide does when it runs off of big rusty surfaces and then impregnates the soil in these, these rusty lines. And so that whole set just smelled like cinnamon forever. Um, <laughs> You also can't just use water because that's going to dry up in the amount of time that your motion control is going to run through. And a lot of these pieces are actually just MDF, so they're just going to be absorbing water as well. So we used a whole lot of glycerin and a whole lot of baby oil. So much baby oil. <laughs> a little goes a long way. So a lot. We, it's saying a lot. We used so, I think we bought the um, large grocery store out of cinnamon like three or four times. And we just had bottles of baby oil everywhere. And we'd have to get these really long spritzers because between camera passes, it's like, oh, it's not quite as glistening as it should be. And so you're just kind of like reaching over stuff, trying to cover it in baby oil. What's that, um, what's that, what's that first trip to the grocery store like? Where you like <laughs> buy them out of baby oil. They're like, what are you doing over at Weta, guys? Yeah. Cinnamon <laughs> you and baby oil. We know that it's Weta usually. Yeah, All right. right. <laughs> We're making we art. buy slices out of uh, stuff. Like, it's ridiculous how many times. Like, oh, and there's no more of this particular paint in the country or oh, in all of Wellington, you can't find this item now. You know, I think, I think this is like really interesting to hear you guys talking about this because, you know, a lot of when we do these, these episodes and what, what we, a lot of what we talk about is to kind of demystify the filmmaking pro obviously a, a film like this, you're not going to demystify it unless you're actually making it. I mean, and I think probably even if you're making it, it's still, it's still a miracle. <laughs> something like this can get made, but to, you know, your average filmmaker, something like this is very, it's like crazy to think about this kind of thing being made. And so to hear you guys talk about like, yeah, we threw cinnamon on it and glycerin or baby oil, or like, you know, well, you know what? It looked one way when it went into the tent, 
And in order to make it look good on camera, it looked completely different coming out. And we just did what we had to do in, in the time that we had is actually pretty, it's pretty freeing in a way, you know, to, to hear you guys talk about that. It's just, you're just a bunch of people trying to make some, a piece of art and it's pretty fantastic. And it, Absolutely reminds me of, you know, watching Foley artists who are like taking a carrot and whacking <laughs> it against a flip flop. And they're like, oh, yeah, this sounds exactly like the rain that I wanted or whatever. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. It's just utilitarian to the to the extreme. And I it's yeah, it is very freeing because yeah. you don't have to have everything. You know, it just points to resourceful resourcefulness is really uh, everything that matters at the end of the day. And a good grocery store. <laughs> a good grocery store. Yeah. Good grocery yeah. store. And, and also used, good off shops as well. Mulch? mulch? Uh, yeah. We, we went to the landscaping place constantly because Trash Mesa is this pile of stuff. We also had a company develop that, that we've worked with for several years that makes our miniature dressing here in, in New Zealand. Um, scenic Textures, I think. Uh, they actually made us some special uh, – what was it? It was um, shredded up bark. Oh. That was Wait, all dyed. Okay. Well, the coconut husk is different, but um, these were all these little chunks of wood that have all been dyed different colors and then added back into a large mix. And what that looks like from the air is a lot of little packed down rubbish bags and things of various color. And it's just mm. that that visual mung that you see in uh, like overhead shots of landfills and things. And so we had about three different scales of that, which you could add to piles like rust pieces breaking down or whatever. Um, we took a lot of aluminum sheets and trimmed those up um, like those newspaper press sheets. We used those. We painted those. Uh, we used a whole lot of straws and cut those into different sizes as light um, pieces of pipes hanging out everywhere. Rolled those in the cinnamon, painted those and all kinds of different stuff. Um, so you have all these pipes. Uh, yeah, the toilet paper was a different technique that people got <laughs> mad at me for because it looked so good. Uh, <laughs> uh, we'd go to the mulch and try to get the, the stuff that we can fill the set out with and then put your hero dressing on top. I think one of my favorite dressing elements that um, I think Ben found was uh, going to the recycling center and digging through the wire shielding when they're recycling copper wire is all of that colored plastic is just perfect piles of trash bags at that scale. Huh. Um, all the little whites and the blues, and that kind of was our, our offset color when we're dressing this this really orange-red rust set, is to add these what would look like um, shopping bags to our, our areas. And then, yeah, the final dressing hero elements, once we've actually got all of the large pieces established, we'd go in with all these little things and, you know, make little trails for people. I think uh, Stephen dressed in a hobbit hole that you never saw. Yeah. <laughs> oh, awesome. <laughs> it, was, it was awful. It was amazing. Um, but, yeah, what Cassie was saying about the toilet paper is, like, I would just go to the bathroom in the studio and just come back with this great big amount of toilet paper. And then I'd use PVA glue that uh, had a bit of dye in it. And... I had all these wires strung up everywhere that like these, they actually did two things. They've made it look like uh, the people that are scrapping all these pieces are uh, trying to have some sort of health and safety or whatever, holding these pieces down from falling over when they start cutting them apart. Uh, but they also help keep the pieces in place, like actually on set, pulling all these wires and things. 
But something you notice when you're looking at a lot of reference of landfills is all those trash bags wind up in the power lines nearby, in the trees, just wrapped around everything, choking the life out of whatever. And so we needed to add a bit more visual noise to the sky. And we did that by replicating these trash bags and tarps and things. And I did that with the toilet paper. You basically just kind of hang it over an area and then spritz it with the uh, the PVA glue that has a bit of color in it. And that, that makes the toilet paper not white anymore. It, it soaks the toilet paper down so it's actually hanging perfectly vertically as gravity would dictate because it's actually running. But then it will set hard so it'll be completely solid so it's not going to flutter around during a visual during a uh, motion control pass um and so i just put this stuff everywhere and it looks so good <laughs> like and i made a little tarp also go house. In and uh, poke holes with toothpicks and stuff to make it look like some of it had ripped through it made all of us very mad that it worked so well <laughs> <laughs> so why why does it why would it make you mad that it works so well oh uh, it's just as a model maker you know you're going through and you're thinking of all these techniques and stuff and oh, all of a sudden gotcha. you see something that's like so basic it's like <laughs> literally in the bathroom and you're like you've got to be kidding me this looks amazing so you're really like yay but also just being yeah. like really <laughs> how was yeah. that not thought of before <laughs> yeah, got like it. you were saying earlier you know filmmaking is a collaborative process and a lot of it has to do with problem solving mm. like, what's the problem it's like oh, we need more stuff somewhere and so when somebody comes back with like a stupid solution you're just going to raise an eyebrow like all right what are you doing and then if it works you're like well fine <laughs> yeah and then you see like 10 of us going and like all using toilet paper the next day being like i got this <laughs> yeah oh it's so great it's yeah so, great. so i'm not mad as an upset but no more i as get in, it. like dang that works so well <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> So were y'all, I guess, fans of Blade Runner in general coming into this? Um, and if so, like, were you happy? I'm just surprised this version of Blade Runner got to get made, right? Because I feel like most sequels or follow-ups, reboots, whatever, uh, it's more about the the spectacle. And this is not at all. Y'all created spectacle, but this was not at all a spectacle movie. This was very thematic and uh, it really does pay honor to the original with how thoughtful and and layered it is. And so I'm curious to hear your thoughts just about the film in general. So when we were working in the model shop, you do a lot of research into what the generation prior has done, right? With, with miniature effects and how films used to be made, which are largely not made that way anymore, of course. Um, for budgets and time and things and our the gold standard again is Blade Runner and so as a model shop everyone's aware of it or they should be not really, <laughs> but and so yeah we wanted to pay homage and when we were bidding on it it'd be like wouldn't it be cool if we just worked on this because we like bid on the vehicles and stuff too but we're too far away for any of that mm-hmm. um, but then when we got it we're like oh no we're gonna be the young fool <laughs> it's gonna be us oh well we'll try our best but largely my career has been made up of sequels, prequels, universe extensions, mm-hmm. whatever, um, because that's just how things are made now. Yeah. Um, and like, that's where we're at. And so it was refreshing to see that the, the storytellers that we just helped tell their story were able to pay homage. Like if it looks good, that's, that's because we helped, right? Uh-huh. Um, that's our only contribution. But it's the story, it's the pacing, it's knowing what they wanted to tell their story uh, that made us look like we knew what we were doing. <laughs> and Blade Runner, uh-huh. yeah, it's 
it's just such a beautiful like gold standard of miniatures and so you know getting that job and especially getting to work on it as well it's like uh clearly it's only going to be you know the most senior model makers and everything and it's like no these guys know exactly what they're doing and we get brought on and it's like okay <laughs> hopefully this is going to be a good story because that's the thing is that when you're in pre-production you don't know what the story is going to be like in the end you can make something absolutely spectacular and then maybe the story falls through or maybe just something about it just doesn't hit the audience right so when something like Blade Runner 2049 you know comes into cinema and you watch it for the first time and your jaw is just on the ground being like not only is this visually stunning like there's so many parts of it that are just from anything from the miniatures to the on-screen sets to the costumes like just all of it is just so beautiful but then also having a story as well like yeah. that's cool that doesn't always happen especially again in sequels and prequels and all that so um seeing the final piece was yeah there was a really big nerd moment i think for a lot of us um when we got to have a crew screening for it so i think one of the things uh that might surprise a lot of people is that i am militantly avoiding any trailers anymore i don't watch film trailers at all I can't stand the spoilers. I can't that's, do it. Not, that's Wes. That's, that's me. Wes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> if it's coming on and I'm like, all right, well, I'll just, you know, I'll leave the cinema and come back <laughs> when yeah. the movie actually starts. Because I don't want to know. I want the storytellers to tell me the story. Yeah. I don't want the marketing team to do it. Yeah. Um, and like this gets so aggressive that for me, I didn't read the script of Blade Runner. <laughs> nice. Uh, Everyone, everyone else that uh, was that was um, working on it. Um, well, not everyone else, but uh, those that were making the the visual f decisions and things had access to it, and I just completely ignored it. I was like, I don't want to know how they're going to screw it up. I will just go and see if it worked. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I didn't I didn't want to know who the characters were. I just knew, okay, K is a person that plies a spinner, whatever. Um, and so I went in cold. And I was like, oh, that's the bit I know about. Oh, <laughs> so it's like, I just need to know my scenes, basically. Uh, I need to know what it needs to look like, and then I'll pay homage there. And yeah, I just I just can't stand trailers anymore. And so when the trailer started dropping and everybody was talking about it, I was like, does it look good? And they're like, it looks amazing. And I'm like, sweet. <laughs> yeah, that's, <all> I, <laughs> that's great. So were you, uh, when you first saw it, were you, I mean, I imagine you were proud, obviously, that you were part of it, uh, you know, of course. But were you like pleasantly surprised that they actually got the story aspect right and and that it was just a good film in general? Yeah. And I was, I was remarkably satisfied with it. I was like, wow, awesome. I've not actually seen a slow burner film in a cinema like that in a long, long time. And it was just so great. Um, when we were working on Blade Runner, they, they screened the original Blade Runner at the largest cinema here in Wellington and at the uh, embassy. And we all being the model shop went and saw it. And for a lot of us, that was the first time that we had ever been able to see Blade Runner on screen in any variation thereof um, in cinema. And so we're all sitting there and it's just like, I remember when we were walking out of it, my friend Joaquin, who was running the model shop at Weta while we were on set, um, he was just like, they're going to see everything. Like, oh, no, we're not going to get through. <laughs> of course, uh, the the biggest Blade Runner fans will know that the uh, the Millennium Falcon is one of the buildings in the city shot uh, of, of the flyover. 
And, you know, when you see it on the cinema, you're like, they didn't even try to hide it. It's just like <laughs> sitting there like it's ready to take off vertically somehow. Like, what? <laughs> so cool. Well, yeah. And then also seeing it on big screen as well, you can see, like, if you know what you're looking for, you can actually see some of the nernies and random bits that they used. And I remember um, they were driving through a gate and the gate was actually just the leftover parts of um, a model kit. So you know how you punch the holes, or sorry, you punch all the pieces out, and then you've got whatever's left over. They actually just used that as a gate, and then had like a little wire, um, like light strapped to it. And I had never seen that detail because I had never seen it on cinema. And I was like, oh, oh yeah, they're gonna see. <laughs> oh my gosh! And oh, so, God. and so, this is called kit bashing, right? Where you kind of re, yep. you take a bunch of different models and take the parts and build something completely new out of it. Uh, and so I'm curious, was there any opportunity for kit bashing on 2049? Yeah. So that was more where I, I settled, um, with what I was building. So I built an awful lot of stuff out of like having a model kit or, or a model shop already set up with a bunch of stuff to kit bash was great. Um, but we quickly ran out of stuff because of the amount of stuff we were mm. dressing. So like, I'd say most of the building toppers that we made were all kit bashed. The, uh, cool. we only 3d printed very small things. Like we just needed exhaust fans. And so we 3d printed mm. those and then mold and then gang cast those. So we just had hundreds of these things to glue on the side of buildings. Um, we did the same thing with the building toppers, um, where Sean foot and Alistair were, um, putting these little model kits together to make molds of, to then replicate as different things, um, which is pretty standard, but I just like building stuff as one off. So, um, we went to the store and just filled up this massive bag full of all these crappy toys and terrible flashlights and just weird plastic things and bottle drink tops. And um, I was always going to the catering and looking at all their uh, their food containers and things. And it's just like, what are you doing in here? It's like, I need to build something. Um, there's a good shot of uh, one of the building toppers that I'm messing with on on uh, the behind the scenes photos. That's uh like this weird drill bit holder that's like this spirally drill bit holder with a uh, a flashlight glued to the top of it sticking vertically but then all of the interior of the flashlight glued on top of that so it's just like you just open up a flashlight and it's full of cool random pieces right mm -hmm. but i gotta say my favorite building topper that i scratch built was it's seen right as you the final approach to lapd when you see the lapd is completely revealed and you're flying up to it off to the right-hand side of the screen on the top of the last building at that scale before it drops down, um, you'll see this weird dome thing with a couple of things sticking out the side of it. And what that is is a dome trash can lid, um, one of those ones with the swivel tops, uh, glued to a flower pot upside down so it, it looks like an observatory. Now, the thing is, in the uh, Blade Runner universe, or uh, in Los Angeles, you can't see the stars at night, right? Mm -hmm. There's too much pollution. The whole planet's ruined. There's too much stuff in the atmosphere. And so as a model maker, you just go and, you know, you spend your day making stories about how something looks. And what I did was I was like, all right, well, whoever lives in this building, for whatever reason, couldn't get off world, but had the wherewithal to be able to observe off world. And so what he's done is he's created a binocular x-ray telescope to look off world and so he's got this you know this trash can lid um and what's sticking out of it is two um i think they're like six scale cannons probably from like master and commander or something that were in the bitch yeah. box and so what it is that's just glued 
um, at an angle, and it just looks like a little observatory on top. And I even have a little door on the side of it, so you can like <laughs> go in there. And, you know, it's just a it's just a flower pot sitting on top of a thing covered in little wires and things to make it look good. And then a bunch of antennas sticking up the top. And I, I think they put some fiber optics there, so there's a blinky light as well. But it's those little storyteller elements that we as model makers just adore being able to put that little story in there that doesn't have anything to do with the script or anything. But you want to be able to create an environment that, you know, if Kay decides to turn left down this corridor, there's a whole new rest of the universe there. It's not it doesn't just stop there. You want it. You want everyone to be able to explore outside of our main character story. And I think having a, a bunch of model makers going in and, and putting these little story elements on, you know, like that guy's apartment has a bunch of cords in it because he doesn't want to pay for power or whatever. So it just has running extension cords out of his neighbor's house. And when you get a bunch of different people telling those little miniature stories, it's it simulates what's happening in that city is you've got all of these different handymen or uh, contractors or people just problem solving in a city trying to figure out how they live you know it's like okay well we have the best water tower over here and now we need to defend it somehow <laughs> it sounds like it's it sounds like you guys were able to kind of in some regards take liberties in those in those aspects like if if you had a story you're like i want to build this thing or whatever did you have the liberty to to be able to do that it sounds like you did a little bit yeah um as long as it fit within the main narrative obviously because no one's going to tell the story about the guy that lives in that building because he's boring as fuck, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Touche. But I'm going to make I'm going to make that little thing as visual noise to I guess satisfy my own model making ambitions, right? Uh, and when when you're able to apply that, uh, it kind of answers questions like, okay, if someone lived here, what would it look like? Or when we got into sending them rushes of the fly through of the the Los Angeles area, uh, one of the first notes we got back was it's too bright. Like there's too many city lights. This is the buildings up here are too inhabited. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that our 3D modelers did when they were doing the architecture of the different buildings is deciding what age that building was, because that tells you how many windows there are. It's a lot cheaper to build a building without windows. And so the new sci-fi looking buildings have very, very, very few windows because who's going to inhabit it, right? It's, it's, it's some sort of working organism. You don't need a window, nothing to look at outside. And so when you, when you fly through, what you see is different age buildings. But the ones with a lot of windows have basically no lights coming out of them. Like you'll have a, a let's say, seven-story building, and there's only three lights on in the whole building. And they're all on the same floor. Um, and so because we built the buildings the way we did, we could art direct which windows were on and off. Stephen also developed a, a way to add parallax to the windows, something to kind of expand on beyond what they were able to do in Blade Runner. Because in Blade Runner, it's all just colored windows. Mm -hmm. um, and if you could go look at a, a cityscape at nighttime, you'll see that any one building isn't one color of lights. No one buys the same color light bulb. You'll yeah. see one freaking room in somebody's house is a different color than the other one because they just bought different temperature light bulbs. And it's just like, how can you live like that? But most people do. Um, or someone else has different colored wallpaper in there. Or somebody's curtains are drawn here. Uh, and so what we did for several of the buildings that were right up close is uh, laser cut little MDF boxes that we then glued paper pictures onto the back of. So we um, would just 
print a bunch of different colored th- living rooms sets with little couch and a little window and just just you know living room stuff and we just glue those on the inside and so when the light shines through that colored paper it's changing the color of the light that's coming out uh-huh. uh, and gluing these little windows on there if you were able to see the the visual effects shots at full resolution what you'd actually see is that the front of the building and the back of that room are parallaxing as you're actually as you're uh, flying through them. So there's a third, there's a, a final dimension within the building that you're able to see through as you're flying by. Wow. That's so cool. And what I love about those kind of details is watching it, the eye is not going to pick up all of those details, but without those details, the eye will absolutely notice the dearth of it. Um, And so it's so important to have it all there because we digest these kinds of images every single day and you'll know when something doesn't feel real and doesn't feel uh, lived in because we're humans and we're absolutely you know just keyed in on all these things even if you can't put your finger on it you know something's wrong and so it's just absolutely genius the way y'all went about creating all this yeah your brain's mapping information whether or not you're processing it that's right uh, so any last thoughts is there, how can we, uh, get more in touch with you and, you know, digest some of your work? I know you have a, a lookbook that's out there. Definitely recommend that book because yeah. I learned a lot about the way they made this film by reading that book, because we only did a very, very, very small part of this, of course. Um, but the people that actually told this story, it's an entirety, the rest of the story is in that book. So definitely go, go find that. But Cassie and I have Instagram and nothing else pretty much. So. Uh, yep. Mine's Chris Mingus. And uh, mine's Adventure Lopez, which doesn't make sense in a pandemic because I don't adventure <laughs> at the moment, but that's okay. The adventure <laughs> is inner. Yeah. It's all about the art now. It's about the art adventure. We can uh, put that in the show notes for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, any final thoughts, man? I really appreciate y'all coming on and taking the time. Oh, yeah. Thank you. It was a good trip down memory lane. <laughs> memory lane. That's, that's awesome. I mean, I just want to say thank you guys so much for joining us and, and giving us your time and, and that this look into such an, such an amazing film and, and kind of like, you know, peeling the veil back to, so that we can see a little bit about like what goes into something like this and the, the, the detail and not just the detail, but the love. Cause yeah. I think that you've got to love this kind of thing in order to come up with these ideas. Oh, let's, let's, let's try toilet paper or whatever. And, and just to know when you watch a movie like this, that someone made all of that. Yeah. It's so easy to forget when you're watching something and you're so immersed in a film like this and, and immersed in the story and the characters and, the, and and all that stuff, which you should be, that someone built all of that is is such, it's just incredible. And so to be able to chat with you guys has been fantastic. So thank you so much for all that. Cheers. Take care, guys. Awesome. Cool. We'll, we'll chat with you soon. Yeah. Sounds good. Bye. Bye, guys. That was amazing. That was freaking epic they were incredible (laughs) this is this is the best episode ever holy shit like blowing my mind so cool uh yeah i'm still rolling okay same uh yeah there's just so much information there that i have i couldn't possibly recall any one specific thing there was just there was too many details my eye couldn't process (laughs) it all (laughs) yeah i get it i get it um what do you want to do now you just want to end it uh wait you want to talk about more? Yeah, I have a few notes actually, um, but I'll roll through it pretty quick. Um, okay. As far as story and writing goes, like the naming convention was 
interesting. They're they're doing something there with Joy, K, and Love, right? J, K, L, alphabetically, they're all together. Joy is the Anna de Armas. Uh, she's the his lover, right? Her, uh, oh my god! Yeah, his digital, you know, girlfriend. Um, and Love, L, U, V. Uh, she is the antagonist right the one that at the end they're fighting and which is kind mm-hmm. of funny because towards the beginning she's trying to help him because he's she's using him to get what she wants right the right. the baby and so it's interesting k is surrounded by joy and love like alphabetically jkl right but behind him and in front of him he's surrounded by joy and love uh, and i don't really know how to make that more pointed or exactly what that would indicate but I do want to dive into Joy a little bit because I I think she is awesome. Um, And some of the problems that we or some of the the things that bothered us, I think, in the first film, Joy addresses a lot of, right? She's used as simple exposition. So in the first film, he was chasing down, Deckard was chasing down all these clues. And you just had to watch and pay attention and stitch it all together in your head. Uh, whereas in this, they use her constantly for little simple expositional elements, right? We learn the meaning of 6, 10, 21 uh, through her, right? Whenever he's analyzing that opening soundbite that we played, he's looking through the DNA sequencing. Um, and they have this little conversation about the meaning of 6, 10, 21. That's just exposition um, that's there to help us along with the story. Um, she also explains why the DNA match is a significant clue, right? She gives him a reason to explain that stuff. What does that mean? What are you talking about? And that's just very simple fodder as an excuse for the storyteller to lay it out in very simple uh, one, two, three fashion, right? One of these isn't real. It's a copy. There's someone that doesn't want us to find them. And uh, it kind of starts letting us go down this rabbit hole uh, with with him. And then does it in a way that we know why we're going and why we're going there. It's just something that we didn't have in the first Blade Runner, right? A device for explaining all the trail of clues that we're going down. Um, but she's also used as understanding his hope of being a human, right? Uh, that's still in this expositional idea, but it's there to make sure we firmly have it in our mind that he has an expectation that maybe he was born. And by his definition, this would imbue him with a soul early on. Uh, that was something that he lays out pretty clean, cleanly, right? That being born gives you a soul. And it was something that uh, the lieutenant says, point blank, you've been doing great getting along without a soul, by the way. And I love that we kind of linger on his reaction to that because his face stays completely blank, but we can infer just the way that he hangs on it, that that hurts him. Like this, that doesn't feel good. Um, and he never looks back at her when he leaves too, by the way. I noticed that. Oh, really? He never looks at her again. After he turns away, he closes yeah. the door. There's the big window and you you expect he's going to look up at her before he turns around, never uh, looks at her again. That's interesting. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. And so we're hearing her by contrast after going through this whole DNA match thing. She tells him in his ear, I always knew you were special, a child of woman born, wanted, loved. Born, not made, hidden with care, a real boy. And then she names him Joe. She gives him a name. And it's like, oh, he's becoming, you know, Pinocchio, right? He's becoming a real boy. And then on top of that, all of that expositional stuff, they use her to demonstrate his loneliness and his capacity for love. They raise the stakes when she, when he has to delete her from his home system. And she does it out of care, 
out of concern, right? It's to protect him. And also so that she can feel like a real girl well, where consequences are real and final. Um, and that's her response to that. Whenever he proposes that to her, he's like, well, if you do that, and if this if something goes wrong with this uh, device, then you're going to get deleted. And that's final. And she's like, yeah, like a real girl. And this whole sequence is right after they've made love. And it wasn't just sex. Uh, this is when they bring in Mariette, played by uh, Mackenzie Davis. Uh, they bring her in. And Mariette, right, is kind of another naming convention, like a marionette. It's like she's she's a thing that's there to, to be used by someone else, right, the puppeteer. And so Joy is kind of using her as a way to experience love and intimacy with uh, Kay, um, because it's not just sex. It's very sensual. It's very meaningful. Um, and they're experiencing and uh, we're witnessing that level of in- intimacy. And it builds emotional buy-in from us, the audience. We're now buying emotionally into their connection uh, through this sex scene. And I love that because some people don't realize that sex scenes do have storytelling elements. Like it's not just there to kind of titillate the viewer and sell tickets whenever it's done by the right storyteller. Uh, sometimes it is, and that's its own thing. And I don't necessarily think that's all bad either, by the way. Um, but that's a whole other element here. It is for a very specific purpose and it's getting us to emotionally buy in to their connection. And, uh, that's important for the audience. Uh, but we also, this is important too. We also don't see her naked in that scene. They're having sex and we never once see her nudity, um, because it's an intimate moment between them, not a lewd or gratuitous moment for the audience. This is also important. And we'll, we'll circle back to that here in a, a second, but they also use her And this is maybe my favorite part about her uh, because they use her to question what it means to be sentient as a program. Now, this builds on the the themes and uh, ideas of the original Blade Runner because it was all about what does it mean to be uh, human, right? Uh, The first Blade Runner was kind of making a case that being human was a collection of experiences. And she, uh, just like some of those original... uh, Uh, Nexus 6 units, she shows all the capabilities of humanity, right? Fear, love, passion, and desire, and these experiences, right? She's using a human to experience sex with gay. So she's, she's showing, she's demonstrating all these aspects of humanity, but her storyline in totality challenges that entire idea because there's something more to being human um, that I think we're going to get at Uh, because at the end after she's killed, right? And like you pointed out at the beginning of the episode, uh, that's a painful moment. We feel that, right? She rushes to him. She's like, I love you. And bang. And I love Love's uh, line right before she does that. I hope you've enjoyed our product. Bang. Mm-hmm. Over. Uh, because it is a product. And we're about to dive into why that is. But at the very end, Kay meets Joy again out on the street. And she's like this hundred foot tall version of herself or whatever maybe it's 30 feet but it feels like it's a thousand feet because she just towers over him and she's fully nude for everyone to see and for everyone to experience and it completely cheapens their personal moment that they had earlier and then the the topper on that building of fu is that she calls him joe you look like a good joe And it reduces her naming of him earlier to an uninspired programmed response. It wasn't her. It was her programming. Mm -hmm. 
and they had this little advertisement going on mm-hmm. below her naked self and it says everything you want to hear to see she's not human because ultimately she was just serving his desires and not her own she was never self-possessed as compared to Rachel as compared uh, to all those next successes they were all self-possessed and if you remember when we first meet her in his apartment She's cooking him dinner, and then she's throwing out every idea of what of what she wants to do until he actually chooses. Because whenever she's like, do you want to do this? And he's like, nah, yeah, me either. Like, do you want to do this? Yeah, me either. And it's just sussing out what he actually wants. She was a device for his pleasure, not able to pursue her own desires. She never even ever had her own desires. And if you listen to what Love said after... Uh, um, or not love, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Mariette, after their whole little uh, episode, she tells her, I've been inside you. She's telling this to Joy. I've been inside you. Not so much there as you think. And it's absolutely cutting whenever you're thinking about all this in, in its context because love is real. The, the character and the, the, the experience of love is real and joy is fleeting. It's ephemeral. It's, it's just targeted at you. Um, those, these are two very contrasting ideas that Kay is, uh, mixed in, in the middle of. And if you compare, uh, to Kay's interaction with Lieutenant Joshi, Joshi, uh, however you pronounce it, which by the way, there's some name convention at play there, right? Uh, Joshi is spelled J O S H I. And Joy is spelled J-O-I. So there's still some naming convention at play there. And if you look at what happens when K is interacting with the lieutenant, who's a real person, and they're having this moment when she's asking, when Joshi, the lieutenant, is asking K to describe his first memory or his earliest memory. And he goes through that whole thing. She's sitting there getting wasted. And at the end of that, she asks him, what happens if I finish that? And she's talking about finishing the, uh, the the liquor. And the implication is she wants to sleep with him. She wants to hook up. And he says, I think it's best if we're, we get back to work or something along those lines. Basically, he declines her invitation for sex. And there's a couple of things that are happening here. And I think this still calls back to the first film. Um, but she respects his autonomy, even though he's a replicant. And he exercises his autonomy mm-hmm. something joy is incapable of doing right she can't even delete herself she needs k to do it and so it's just this element of what does it mean to be human and all those experiences all those uh, aspirations are certainly in play but it also uh, has to do with your self-possession the ability to want and to go after and to exercise uh, your autonomy none of which joy is capable of doing brilliant wow yeah it's amazing they're doing so much in this movie man it's so freaking good and then we can look at k he goes through this whole thing right how do i know if a memory is real or not and then joy asks him who makes the memories and so he goes down to interview dr staline right the memory maker and we learn something very important before we learn something else more important they establish it's illegal to use memory, real memories officer, because he's asking her, how do I know if a memory is real or not? And she's like, whoa, hey, 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 it's illegal to use real memories. Officer, you're a cop. <laughs> like, I know what's going on here. <laughs> um, and he is. So we're establishing something important, though. It's that he is not supposed to have any real memories. And so if he does have any real memories, 
that means he's a real person. And so she sees his memory, she cries, and confirms it's real. What we don't know is the reason she's crying isn't because she's this incredibly sensitive person, which I think is perfectly echoed through her performance, right? She's very soft and almost speaks at a whisper and with all this passion. And when she sees this memory, she's crying because she knows this is her memory. But to us, it's confirming that he's a real person. And that's all reflected in him freaking out, right? He's been living his life like a replicant. He's been tricked. Uh, what a terrible thing that he's been wasting his life under this false belief of who he actually is. And what I love about this little sequence is that he begins acting like a human. The very next scene, he's botching his baseline test. And so to begin acting like a human, he only needed to believe he was a human. And that's a really profound idea. Whenever you're, you're asking this very fundamental question, what does it mean to be human? Well, it's just to believe that you are and that you are capable. Um, it gets into this other aspect of Arminianism versus uh, Calvinism, predestination versus free will uh, that kind of permeates this whole universe as well. And I don't know, maybe we, we can arrive at something that uh, here in a minute, but something else happens later, right? Then we go, finally, we meet Deckard and they do something really fun here, which is switching perspectives because initially whenever we, we meet uh, Deckard, Deckard takes a shot at him, right? And Kay jumps like, and then he flees. And now we're following Kay around the nightclub and he's hiding from Deckard. We don't know where Deckard is um, until Deckard finds him, right? He shoots, nearly takes his head off. Uh, then we switch after that. We switch to Deckard's perspective and now we lose track of Kay. We don't know where he is until uh, he attacks Deckard back. And we're now beginning to identify with both characters. We're watching the new one and the old old one, uh, the old Blade Runner versus the new Blade Runner, and we're seeing them kind of find common ground. And I think that's important to kind of have these perspectives because up until this point, right, this entire film has been told through Kay's uh, perspective, but the entire first film was through largely through Deckard's. Um, and so beginning to kind of pull him in, in a way that helps us see that he's not a side character. He's a main character, uh, is, is very important. And then after they meet, they have to sit down. There's a very important thing that happens that I don't think anybody missed. Uh, but Deckard pours some whiskey for the dog. The log dog comes over and drink it. And we all have the same thought. Is this, is this a real dog? or uh, creation and you know right on cue k asks is it real and decker's response is so perfect he says i don't know ask him and it's giving you a big question of what does it mean to be real in the first place things can define themselves and if you're trying to figure out is this dog real or not that kind of answers its own question like the idea that you don't know kind of makes it real uh, because after Deckard is taken and he's flying away, the dog, we have this shot. The dog sadly walks over to the window and watches his owner being taken away from him. Now, we don't know if it's an artificial dog, but what could be more real than a dog that loves its owner? I mean, it's a very simple aspect of what it means to be a dog, and we are completely bought in. And it, it, it just doesn't matter if it's technically real or not. It's real because it's acting real and it has these real impulses. And so it's, it's tugging of war of what does it mean to be real and human and what 
where's the line at? And it's building on all those things of the first Blade Runner and all these very beautiful nuanced ways. And then the reveal, and this is such a, and I think this kind of puts the, the point on the end of the film because the whole reveal that he's not the child that was born is, is all concealed through the, the use of language, right? That conceal that by using words like our child, the child, the baby. And it's so perfect because now, with a single word through the use of sex, we can concisely reveal the twist. With just one word. That's always so hard to do, to concisely reveal uh, a, a important plot point so that everyone is on the same page at the exact same moment, right? With the word, he realizes that he's not the born replicant because she was important. She needed to be hidden. And I love, personally, that Kay finds out that he's not special the hero of our story isn't the quote unquote chosen one. Right. Mm -hmm. And it seems like a really rare story decision and is maybe even asking us, the audience to stop seeing ourselves as a special chosen hero. Um, and instead see ourselves as part of something bigger and as part of something more that we still have a role to play because at, now at this point, he has to make a decision about what he wants to do. He's being almost commanded by the, the uprising to go and kill Deckard. Deckard needs to die. Um, instead, he kills love, right? He chokes her in the air and then he drowns her. And this is such an inter interesting moment because to me, it's like she's being unborn. Maybe that she has no soul. Because at the beginning of the film, uh, Kay kind of defines having a soul by being born. And everyone else, love defines it as, is it love? I can't remember now who, who says it, but uh, what could be more human than dying for the right cause. Uh, I guess that might be the uprising leader. But there's this idea that's invoked. What could be more human than dying for the right cause? And so she's unborn. He drowns her almost like she's going uh, reversed, right? She's being unborn. Um, and then after that, Kay takes Deckard to meet his daughter. And at the entrance, Deckard asks him this very important question. Why? What am I to you? Kay doesn't answer him. He's just like, go meet your daughter. But we're on the inside. We're answering that question for him because dying for the right cause is the most human thing that he can do. Then he lays down and he dies. And he dies in the snow, which snow is usually symbolic of a lot of things, right? Purity, renewal, uh, fresh beginnings. Um, and in this case, I think it's spirit. I think it's, it's uh, symbolic of his soul. Because in this case, maybe it's a subtle callback to Batty's death in, in, the, in, the, in, in the original. Whenever he dies at the end, he releases his dove, right? The, the dove ascends into the heavens. And in this case, it's the, it's the reverse. Uh, snow is falling on him. And maybe that's a reflection of his humanity. Yeah. And so I think at the end of the day, he's human because uh, he meets kind of all the requirements that we, we expect out of humanity. He has desires. Um, he, he makes choices, he exercises his self, uh, possession, um, and he dies for something that he chose to die for. Uh, he chose to die to reunite a man with his daughter. That's beautiful. Yeah. Wow. Brilliant. I, I mean, I don't have anything to add to that. I, th I agree with all of it. It's <laughs> very insightful. Actually, there's a lot of stuff in there that I, <laughs> I didn't think about, uh, but I think it's one of those things where if you watch it, more than once you can probably you can probably pick up a lot of that yeah. that stuff uh, like watch like the the big you know 100 foot tall joy at the end 
where she's, you know, you're, you look like a good Joe. It's very on point. I think that, that that's pretty noticeable, but a lot of that other stuff um, really isn't. So, I cool. mean, brilliant. I don't have anything to add. Nice. I awesome. only have one more note and it's just this general filmmaking note, which is the use of a cutaway. It's something that happens a lot. Um, but one of the things that's hard to do is sell an effect, a, a practical effect, right? Someone gets punched in the face and they're bleeding. Blood doesn't just come out. Usually, you know, it's just done bang, bang, and suddenly there's blood everywhere. But you really need a little bit more time. And they use that to great effect here. K hits that slave laborer, right, with all the, the yep. child labor, hits him in the face with a gun. Um, instead of just his fist, it's a gun. And we cut to this kid reacting to that. And then we cut back and his face is bloodied. And it's a simple way to sell the scene. The cutaway allows us to see a kid reacting to the punch, which now we can kind of feel the pain through his reaction, but also maybe assume some kind of enjoyment from someone seeing their abductor d- treated this way. Then we can cut back and have allowed enough time to pass and see blood on his face. So it, it lets the makeup department kind of jump in, add blood and have it all be believable with a little bit of more time passage. Um, and so it's just really, really good use of a cutaway. Um, but yeah, that's, that's it. Sorry. I'm sure you, this is a crazy long episode. And so I'm sure you got things to yeah. do, uh, but that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> um, yeah. This is what I got. Final thoughts. I, I'd, I'd rather be doing this than <laughs> anything else. This is awesome. Uh, no, I don't have any other thoughts. I, I loved it. I thought it was brilliant. Um, a masterpiece, honestly. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing I would change. The casting's fantastic. It's, it's just great nice. in all ways, in all so ways. Completely agree. Um, yeah. Uh, recommendation for the week. Uh, yeah. So I'm going to, I can't believe that we haven't either covered this or, uh, but I looked on the sheet. I don't see it uh, or like recommended this, but I'm going to recommend the abyss, uh, James Cameron film from 1989, which I'm sure had its share of the same stuff we've been talking about today. And it is brilliant, brilliant film that honestly I could watch right now and be entertained the entire way through um it's just brilliant in all aspects uh and i know that we brought maybe maybe i'm surprised we haven't recommended it because we brought it up number of times on the podcast particularly when we did underwater we brought it up and a few others but but yeah just a timeless movie for me yeah the abyss nice yeah i'm gonna recommend so this film has this wasteland right where it's just trash is everywhere a big part of the film is the idea that we've wrecked the planet and so one of our friends that and friend of the show that we've had on before byron reese wrote a book called wasted and i i finished reading that and i loved it i thought it was a fantastic read and it offers really profound insights into what it into waste and the environmental catastrophe that we're all figuring out and have a wide variety of views i think still and this takes that into a whole other stratosphere whenever you think about what does it mean to recycle? What's the best way to reduce carbon emissions? Um, what's the best way to carbon capture? What does it mean to uh, produce, you know, steel? And how does that impact it? Like there's so many crazy and it's an entertaining read. And here's the thing. It's not just this doom and gloom thing. There's actually a lot of hope and encouragement that you can take away from it. Um, and so I'm going to highly recommend Wasted uh, by Byron Reese. I'll link it in the show notes. In addition to all the other stuff you've been 
hearing about from Chris and Cassie, uh, the, the lookbook that they made for 2049. I'm actually going to buy the heck out of that and, and, and check that out because that sounds incredibly insightful. Yeah. And so stay tuned for next week. We're going to cover this Apple TV film called Coda. It's yeah, it's out right now. If you're, if you have Apple TV, it's streaming there. Um, actually, do you want to do Sicario instead? Now that I'm thinking about Coda, maybe it's not quite, I don't know. I'm on the fence. Let's just do Coda. Sorry. <laughs> I just talked myself around in a circle like a. I mean, or- I'm, I'm fine either way. I want to see both. So. Okay. Well, let's do Sicario. Maybe we'll do Coda as okay. a, as a podcast bonus. Um, okay. And so. Yeah, I like that. Nice. So stay tuned next week. We're going to cover Denny Villeneuve's uh, Sicario starring Emily Blunt and some other people uh, who really cares. It has Emily Blunt in it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well put. Well put. And uh, if you're enjoying the show, don't forget, subscribe, review us on iTunes. um, Leave us know if there's something you want to talk about and the kind of things you want us to cover. And next week, I'm excited. There's an update on, uh, if y'all remember about a year and a half ago, I did a, we did a big fitness journey thing and I have some, very cool, interesting updates on that. Not necessarily on me, but one of our listeners uh, was inspired and, uh, and and found it useful. And they had an incredible experience um, that I cannot wait to share with. And so, oh my gosh, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm super excited about that. And so if you want to leave a note on this episode uh, and weigh in, um, you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash Blade Runner 2049. And I, I noticed we don't have a quote for the day, but I wanted to, well, I wanted to ha- give one please from the movie, from the movie, ah, okay. right. That, that stuck with me. And I think we mentioned it at one point, but there's a scene where at the, towards the beginning where he, where Lieutenant Joshi is telling Kay what he has to do. So we know the premise of the film where he's got to track down this, this uh, child. And so the one line that I'm going to leave you with because of the the law that went into effect in Texas this this past week um, is one thing and it doesn't matter on either side what you are what we are to be born is to have a soul I guess it's the I guess mm-hmm. also that that stuck with me right and I don't know that it was meant for anything but I just think that is something to chew on and it's a good thing to leave on, right? Just think about that. To be born is to have a soul, I guess. The born aspect and the I guess aspect are very interesting things to ruminate on. That's all, that's all I'll say about that. But thank you guys so much. This has been a crazy long episode. <laughs> we know, we understand if you're still here, why? I don't really get it. <laughs> I don't know why I'm here. Uh, no, that was... That was so wonderful to have those have those guys on and uh, thank you so much again for joining us and and make sure to share this with your friends and let us know what you want us to cover we're happy we're happy to take suggestions and and just love watching films and we hope that you do too uh, until next time I'm Todd I'm Wes go watch the movies. Mm-hmm.